Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Hi again from Buffalo. Did you know that Frederick Law Olmsted designed our extensive park system? He's also known for a little piece of work called Central Park in Manhattan. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. In the second of our two episode series, Alankar Sharma continues the discussion of his work related to the intersection of race, gender, and public health by answering his fundamental question. What accounts for the huge differences in the longevity and funding support between the Tuskegee experiments and the scarcely known Negro Project? Right off, Mr. Sharma raises troubling questions related to research ethics and how the answer may lie in the cultural narrative of black men during the time of the studies. Citing examples such as the accepted hypersexuality of black men and their perceived basic physiological inferiority to whites and the pervasive impact of stereotypical racial assumptions, he ties historical oppression to African-American access to healthcare services today. Mr. Sharma concludes with a call for a social work response and comments on the legitimacy of a post-racial United States. Alan Carr Sharma is a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work and visiting instructor at the University of Iowa School of Social Work. His academic interests include gender-based violence, child sexual abuse, sexuality rights, social justice and diversity, and international social work. He maintains a key interest in understanding masculinities from a feminist and social justice perspective. Mr. Sharma was interviewed by Dr. Adjul Robinson, assistant professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Dr. Robinson interviewed Mr. Sharma by telephone. Hi, this is your host, Peter Sabota. We'd like to mention that this episode contains some background distortion that is due to technical problems we experienced while recording. Thanks, and we hope you like the podcast. The big question to me was, so why then does the Tuskegee study, and Tuskegee study, it, just to sort of briefly summarize, it was a study that they had 600 subjects in the study, and 399 out of those 600 were identified syphilis patients, and it ran from the year 1932 to 1972, and in, the 1970, in 1972 it came to an unplanned end. It wasn't a planned end, it was because somebody was a whistleblower and then a journalist broke the story in the media and that created a public outcry which led to the termination of the study. So had that not happened, who knows how long that might have continued. It was funded by the United States Public Health Services, uh, it was a public health program uh, in that program. Uh, the, the subject, even though it was an experimental study, truly what was going on was they were lying to people that they were being treated for syphilis, even though they were not being treated for syphilis at any point in time. There was even not an intention to treat these patients for syphilis. It was only to, in their own words, the experiment was about, in a sense, studying this disease 
in their natural environment, in the natural environment of the subjects which were African American men. So they were studying it, they were not preventing or curing it. And they were trying to see how it impacted black men. And I've said they were lied to and cheated, but they were also tortured. A lot of very excruciatingly painful experiments uh, were conducted on them. And today, as we know, it's a very embarrassing and shameful example of how research should not be done. Yes. <laughs> uh, but to me, the big question was, so why is the two projects, both uh, public health projects, both looking at the real diseases in African-American community. Why is it that one project is so short-lived, Negro project, which started in early 1940s, had disappeared by the mid-1940s? Why is it that that project was so short-lived, while the Tuskegee study, it almost flourished for nearly 40 years, for nearly half a century? And who knows if the person would not have blown the whistle on it, how long it might have continued. So why is it that two projects both of them looking at men in African-American community and syphilis. One has a very short life. The other one flourishes for nearly half a century. Why is it that that happens? And that to me, from a critical race theory perspective, that the answer lies in the narrative of both the projects. What I mean by that is the Tuskegee study, it fit the narrative of racial black masculinity in the United States. The Negro project, was a counter narrative. It resisted the same narrative of racial black masculinity. So what's the narrative of racial black masculinity in the United States? Black men have been historically considered devious, dangerous, delinquent. Black bodies have been constructed as almost animalistic. There are these stereotypes in society which are about that African-American people, they are muscular and physically strong, but lacking in intelligence, a very unfortunate, but a very popular narrative in the mainstream discourse. Was that the thought then, or is it now? Because it seems pretty familiar. <laughs> but <laughs> the, unfortunately, I think the, the, the thought has, has been with us uh, for, for centuries, uh, beginning with or even predating times of slavery. And then that, that, that thought, that idea continues, as you said, even until today. African-American men and women have been constructed as hypersexual. So even in, in times of slavery and in Jim Crow, you would find this whole big idea about black men as the rapist and as a sexual threat to white women. But is that something that we don't see today, that black men are considered dangerous and, and sexually aggressive? Similarly, black women have also been considered hypersexual. So this whole idea that they have too many children, that they make too many babies and they cannot take care of them, that that's why so many of them are welfare moms. Those are the harmful and damaging discourses in the mainstream that these ideas flow out of. Talking about the intersection of race and gender with regard to masculinity and, and African-American communities, African-American race has been equated with disease, vice and crime over centuries. The black body has been constructed as hypersexual and black men have been constructed as people with unbridled animalistic sexual desire. And the same thing about what we hear about black fathers today, that they all they want to do is make babies, but they are not there to take care of them. And that narrative, so where does it come out of? And what we just talked about, that they are lacking in intellectual abilities. It is my view that this mainstream narrative of black masculinity played a role in the longevity of Tuskegee study, but a very short life of the Negro project. For example, 
the Tuskegee study was based on the notion that black men were naturally inferior, that there was something natural about high prevalence of, of sexually transmitted diseases among black men. They believed that, and this is something that scholars who researched the Tuskegee study extensively have talked about, and they have said that the belief on which the study was premised was that black men could not benefit from the treatment for syphilis. They could not gain from the medical advancements because they believed that black and white bodies were inherently and naturally different. So the treatment that had shown evidence of working with white people would just not work with black people. And that was the assumption that started off. They said that even if it would work, black men would not seek or continue treatment because they are hypersexual or because they are sexually deviant or because they just live in places where they will not have access to this treatment. So there was, so what was the purpose of working with this community if this community was not going to benefit? So what's the purpose of extending treatment to black men when treatment was either not going to benefit them or they were not going to, they were not going to continue this treatment. So what was the point? So they wanted to study syphilis. Essentially what was going on was these people had syphilis and they were being experimented upon but not treated, uh, even when penicillin had been found to show improvements in the health outcomes of people with syphilis. Even then, they did not use penicillin, the black men in the study. That only suggests this mainstream idea that somehow African-American people are inferior to European-American people. That this treatment that would work on one kind of body would not work on a different kind of body. And that was at the, at, at the root of it as to why they even conceptualized this study in the first place. It also shows that they did not, they did not solicit collaboration, partnership with African-American community. And because it goes back to the same idea that black people, while they excel in physical ability, they lack in intellectual ability. The concept of black leadership itself was missing. How can we have leaders from a community which lacks in intellectual abilities? Moreover, this idea that African-American people would not continue treatment suggests that somehow these people would not comprehend the value of treatment and therefore would not continue it. They may have been able to get away with that type of thinking until the 1950s, but mm -hmm. as we look at or observed the social movements, there was a tremendous rise in black leadership. Not that it had been absent before, but it gained national attention. Absolutely. as well as the perseverance of African-American people in the pursuit of good, the pursuit of social justice in terms of equality. At a certain point, these folks at the Public Health Service who continued to believe that there was the intellectual ability was lacking, the, the leadership was lacking, and the perseverance was lacking, has no merit. They have no leg to stand on. Absolutely. I agree with you that, that I think we have made a whole lot of progress in the last 50 years or more in, in terms of challenging those ideas. I would say though that those ideas, they, they somehow still are present in, in today's society as well. About, you know, the, the notion of black man as dangerous hasn't gone away, unfortunately. I cannot remember the name of, uh, of, the, of the scholar, I apologize, but that had written this wonderful piece called Black the Ripper. Um, mm based on, on Jack the Ripper, 
about a black man who was found violent in New York City and had sliced a lot of people on the, on the subway, I believe. But talked about in this piece, which used critical discourse analysis, this scholar examined the racial stereotypes that were repeated and generated in the media in reporting on the story and how this story uh, went back to the idea of uh, his race and not just this one delinquent person who was committing violence on a subway. It evoked a lot of racial stereotypes. And, and those stereotypes in terms of what gang members look like and what gangsters look like and that black neighborhoods are somehow dangerous neighbor, in neighborhoods and that one shouldn't be in a predominantly black neighborhood beyond a certain hour of the day. You know, those, those ideas haven't gone away. Those ideas, we find them around us all the time. So I think those ideas, even though they have been challenged and limited, I think those ideas still persist, unfortunately. And that's why they, they need to more work um, in that regard. A couple of other things that I do want to mention is this, just going back to what I said, you know, this idea that, that black was somehow naturally inferior was at the root of the Justini experiment. But as we discussed earlier, that was the idea that the legal project was challenging, that it wasn't the black community that was somehow naturally inferior, it was all their social conditions that was leading to a high rate of prevalence in African-American communities. So there was that one. In that sense, it was a counter story to the mainstream narrative of, of racial black masculinity. The Tuskegee study, it refused to acknowledge that race was an element in the study, which sounds ridiculous. So yeah, ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> it's so ridiculous that it, it's laughable today that the Tuskegee study had nothing to do with race. Dr. John Heller, who at one point in time had led the study in 1972 said, and I quote, there was no racial side to this. It just happened to be in a black community, unquote. Now, even if you take it at face value, it can be seen as colorblind racism, that even if you take it at face value that yes, it just happened to be there and there was no racial side to it, it can be seen as colorblind racism, which is that one is perpetuating a racist act, but without acknowledging that race has anything to do with it. But I'm not sure if I, if I buy into that argument, this, that this had, it had no racial side to it, that it just happened to be in Macon County, Alabama. Why is it that it was not in a predominantly white county in Connecticut or in Washington or New York? You know, why is it that it happened to be Macon County, Alabama and that it had no racial side to it, that the study was led by a predominantly white staff and doc team of doctors uh, and officials and uh, all the people, all the subjects in the study were all black yeah. and that nobody noticed race <laughs> in, the make, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the middle of all it. So I'm not sure if I agree with with Dr. Heller, do you? No, <laughs> I'm not buying it. <laughs> um, so, so there's this idea that, 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 again, the same blind spot towards race, that race, it was absent in the context. On the other hand, as we've talked at length about the legal project, they were actively wrestling with race dynamics in trying to figure out how to do this project uh, in a way that would make it most effective and efficient. Um, they were talking to black people and black leaders, and they were working out ways in which they could develop educational materials that were most suitable for African-American community. Um, they acknowledged that they could not have the same approach for white people and black people. So they, they were not, they did not have a blind spot 
blind spot towards race. Now, one can argue that their approach might not have been the best, um, but, but one cannot argue that they were not thinking about race at all. And in John, uh, Dr. John Herrer's words, they were not thinking about the race at all, even if you buy into that argument. The so, final thing that I do want to mention is that historically, during times of slavery and even post-slavery, black men were lynched and castrated. Um, and that wasn't an unusual occurrence, unfortunately. And, and many a times, that, that lynching or castration came out of the idea of black men as being criminal, being devious, being dangerous, being a threat to society, and a sexual threat to white women especially. Um, yes. There are many examples of that in history, uh, history that's not too distant, where black men were lynched because they were seen as a sexual danger to a white woman or to white women in general. Um, and some scholars have talked about the idea about symbolic castration. So even though um, castrations, uh, like in the times of slavery or by KKK, are not as uh, routine uh, today, uh, there is this idea uh, that of, of symbolic castration where black masculinity is belittled. Uh, so you have an example? Example, the, the Skiki study itself that by constructing black men as animalistic, as lacking in intelligence, as naturally anatomically inferior, that somehow their bodies, they, that they were going to get this disease that could not be prevented. Once they had this disease, they were going to die of it and that could not be prevented. That idea, by keeping them from accessing sexual health services, can be viewed as, as a symbolic castration, by constructing them as somehow subhuman, animalistic, devious, dangerous, delinquent, hypersexual. Not just that, but by keeping them away from sexual health services can be seen as symbolic castration. Do you think that's happening today? The African-American community and black men in particular are being kept away from health services? I, I don't think they're being kept away from health services. I do think though that we know that the access to healthcare is not equitable, that communities of color and communities living in poverty have a far less access to healthcare services as do European Americans and communities who belong to higher social economic sphere. So we are not living in, a, in an equitable society and we know that from research evidence. We also know that African American communities have mistrust uh, of public health services. So I, I don't think that African-American people, or men in particular, are being kept away from services. I do think, though, that the stereotypes that are racial and racist do play a role in limiting their access to healthcare services, and not just healthcare services, but a variety of social welfare services. For example, black fathers, and this, 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 this idea, and I'm, I'm moving away from this project and talking about black masculinity in general now, um, this idea that, that somehow uh, they are a hopeless case, that they are deadbeat to begin with. And therefore, one doesn't find very many agencies that are actively working with black fathers and teenage black fathers, especially, in getting them involved in the parenting and well-being of the children. Because of many factors, one of which I think is this idea that it's a hopeless case because it goes back to the same racial stereotypes. 
that they are hypersexual, that they are irresponsible, that they are interested in making babies, but they are not interested in taking care of. And those stereotypes, we keep uh, listening to them over and over again. There is this also, we've talked about how black men especially are seen as dangerous. There are people who, who talked about it in documentaries and research and in the memoirs about how, for example, the other day some, I, was, I was listening to somebody share an experience that as, as this person walks by, they find some people roll up their car windows because they think that this man would be purse snatcher or something. And so I think um, racism in health services or social welfare services in general today is not as rapid as is the case of the CV study. I do think, though, that a lot of the stereotypes and myths about race and race with regard to African-American men and African-American community in general are still alive and they do play a role in limiting their access to health services. And so with that in mind, what are you calling social workers, practitioners, policymakers, and researchers? What are you calling them to do? I am calling, first of all, attention to history because I think, especially in social work, we have not paid as much attention to, to history as we need to. Because, again, coming from a critical race theory perspective, uh, I challenge a historicism. History has a profound impact on how people live their lives today. Um, for example, uh, let me think of another example that black masculinity was belittled, derided, and challenged in times of slavery and you know, Jim Crow in either seeing it as dangerous and aggressive and hyper-masculine or seeing it as, and I understand that I'm, I'm going back to my initial idea, black men as, as dangerous, devious. So the black masculinity was belittled either in terms of constructing it as animalistic or dangerous or by pejorative, using pejorative terms such as sambo or boy. So either it was inferior or it was this aggressive, dangerous, it was never equal, it was never natural, it was never normal. And we find the same kind of discourse to be continuing even today. For example, there is this gangsta personality that we hear about in the media. And Majors and Wilson, who written extensively about the idea of the cool folks, uh, which in their words is that in the larger social environment where opportunities for black men uh, to be successful are limited because of poverty, low socioeconomic status, low access to healthcare, low access to employment and educational opportunities. When that is limited, then sometimes people take on personas that in which they can be successful. So for example, the idea about violence among black men and their involvement in violent crime, that when opportunities for pro-social involvement and success as men are curtailed, then another way of being man or manly is by being violent because that is a gender normative experience for men. That is, men are seen as aggressive, violent, or more violent people than women and other genders. And therefore, this idea that when a man can be successful in the traditional patriarchal way, in different ways, you know, by by being academically successful, by being successful in terms of how much money and wealth they have. But when those opportunities are curtailed, sometimes what that leads to is people using other ways of being successful as men. And in a patriarchal, those, that success is sometimes measured by a person's aggressive aggressiveness. And therefore, that leads us to develop 
some sort of a connection between involvement of black men in violent crime with the racial stereotypes and racism in society. And that is not to justify any one person's violent activity and to not hold them accountable for it, but to implicate the larger society in creating that social structure, uh, which leads to curtailed opportunity and incitement for getting involved with anti-social. I've actually heard that argument related to young women who have limited educational and economic opportunities. There still is the drive to express themselves as women. And so when other opportunities are denied, there's still always the fallback of motherhood. That's something uniquely feminine or something that women can do. And that makes a statement. And so people may ask, well, why are these teenage girls getting pregnant? Well, that is, it's, it's one way to show that you're a woman. How they can actualize uh, their, their femininity and other opportunities are curtailed. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. Coming back to the relevance of it to, to social workers, I think one is paying attention to history because history is so intertwined with our contemporary lives uh, that it's important to pay attention to it. The other thing is to pay attention to intersectionality. Uh, and that is really important. It's not just important to pay attention to race, it's important to pay attention to class and to gender, and not just that, but to pay attention to the intersections. For example, in this case, I try to pay attention to the intersection between masculinity and blackness. And that's what led to this analysis, which I think is important to understand the low access to healthcare for black men today, and to understand what might be at the root of the gender mistrust of black communities um, towards healthcare services. So I think paying attention to intersectionality is extremely important and something we must not and cannot avoid in, in social work. I think it's important to acknowledge the idea that legacies of oppression and marginalization, they continue to profoundly impact lives today. There is this growing idea, which in my opinion is harmful, that we are living in a post-racial or a post-patriarchal society that because we have a president of color, we have moved away from racism. That because a woman can have a job as a professor at a university or uh, as a secretary of state, we have moved away from patriarchy. And that is not true. There is a lot that has been achieved and accomplished, and one is not denying that. But there is a lot that needs to be done. And therefore, I think it's really, really important to understand that we are not a post-oppression society and that we are not a post-history society either. We appreciate you taking the time out to discuss your work with us. Thank you so very much. You've been listening to Alan Kar Sharma discuss the intersections of race, gender, and public health on Living Proof. If you've missed part one of this podcast, please check out episode 58, Alan Kar Sharma, Tuskegee, and the Negro Project. I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.